Tonight we're going to begin a study in this book. I don't know how, how long it will take us, but this is to be looked upon as an introduction to the book of Amos. As far as I can see, we'll be looking at our sermon audio site. It does seem that no one has preached a sermon from Amos since we started using the sermon audio site. That's a number of years ago, at least 10 years. So it does seem that this is a book that the congregation has not studied or at least had sermons upon. So we want to begin then a series of sermons on the book of Amos. The author is Amos himself, there's no doubt about it. His name means burden or burden bearer. And he certainly had a burden. He had a burden. He was called to preach the word of God. And uh, this burden was upon him. And we're, we believe that he was successful in that he successfully communicated that burden. And this would tell us something about uh, the life of uh, the gospel minister. He's not a prophet in the sense that Amos was a prophet, but he must have something of the burden of the Lord. He must truly, if he's to be exercising his, his role, that he will come forward and come forth with a burden, with a message. And certainly Amos was one who lived up to his name. He was a city, he was a citizen, I should say, of a village, Tekoa, and that belonged to the tribe of Judah, which was approximately 11 miles away from Jerusalem. We will find it when we go through the book, but he was a herdsman, and he was also a grower of sycamore figs. Now this would suggest to us not only was he a, a manual worker, but that he had to have two jobs. So we would draw from this that he was not a man of means. He was a, a manual worker. He worked with his hands and he knew the sweat of the brow as he sought to work and to provide for himself. He received a clear call from God. We will come across that. And in spite of attempts to silence him, his message was clearly communicated. It does not seem that he was a highly educated individual. His language is very clear and forceful, but he was one who was able to articulate himself and deliver the very words of God to the audience intended. As I seek to introduce the book and the person, it would be helpful for us too that we might see, draw some parallels uh, with Christ because there are some things in the life and in the character of Amos that would remind us of our Savior. In his occupation, for instance, he was a working man. He worked with his hands, just like the Lord Jesus until he came to that point when he began his public ministry. He was a humble individual. He acknowledged his lowly origin. And so it was of the Lord Jesus Christ, although he was 
King of kings and Lord of lords. He came from uh, Nazareth and very often he was called uh, Jesus of Nazareth. He has similarities in his method of teaching by illustrations. And here Jesus obviously was a master. He was able to take everyday situations and circumstances and maybe even things that he saw as he was actually preaching to convey gospel messages. You think of the parable of the sower, for instance. We all know it intimately. It could well be that as he delivered that parable, there was a sower maybe not far from him going about his work, throwing the seed. And there the Lord Jesus was able to take that situation and to turn it to spiritual use and spiritual benefit. He claimed, Amos that is, he claimed divine inspiration. There are a number of terms that we'll find in the book. For instance, thus saith the Lord, that occurs over 40 times in this prophecy. And therefore he didn't speak his own words. It wasn't his own imagination. This wasn't his learning. This wasn't his thinking. He was a mouthpiece for God, as indeed was the Lord Jesus Christ. Amos, as we will see, was charged with treason. So was the Lord Jesus. Amos, in the pressure of duty which was upon him, was like the Lord Jesus Christ, who acknowledged the pressure, the pressure that was upon him as he sought to do the will of God. And in, in another thing, we would notice that Amos was a social justice warrior. We hear so much about that today in our culture. Well, here we have a wonderful example, as we shall see as we go through this book, that Amos did not like, and he pointed out when the rich were abusing their power and status to downtrod the poor, again, just like Jesus Christ. And he was not afraid to confront these people who had power and influence with the word of God. Now this book was written approximately 750 BC to 750 BC. And it was written during the reigns of Jeroboam II, who reigned in Israel. That means he was the, he was the leader of the 10 tribes who were in the north. And it was written during the time of Uzziah when he was king in Judah in the south. Now the book has, the book, we've read a chapter there, and if we're honest, it may well have stretched us. It may well have caused us, what is all this about? But as we go through the book, the message is abundantly clear. And this is one of the problems, and I use that word in inverted commas, one of the problems Amos had. His message was crystal clear. The people just didn't like it. It was absolutely clear to them. And the message is that God's righteous judgment was going to fall upon his unrighteous people. Who was it written to? Well, it was written to the northern kingdom. 
Israel, the ten kingdoms in the north, or the ten tribes in the north, I should say. It was written to them. Now, if you've been following what we read, you will remember that Amos came from Judah in the south, but his ministry was to the ten tribes in the north. Verse 1 there, towards the end, it talks about the message, and it, it came around the two years before the earthquake. Two years before the earthquake. We don't know the date of that earthquake. Sacred Scripture does not reveal it to us. Joseph, or Joseph, he the historian, Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, he mentions this, and he says this earthquake happened when King Uzziah in Judah seized on the priestly office, and when he was turned into a leper. That's when he would put the time of the earthquake. It doesn't really matter because the people to whom Amos was prophesying to, they knew exactly the date. They were familiar with it and they were familiar with the earthquake. It's not necessary for us to be familiar with it. Now, he was, and we use these words respectfully, he was a simple manual worker minding his own business and seeking to stay alive in a very harsh environment in Tekoa when God called him to the prophetic ministry. And there's no doubt that his background, which would have been in some sense isolation, he'd be looking after his, his flock and his cows and doing all that he had to do, it would have involved some isolation no doubt that was preparing him for the prophetic role that the Lord had for him. And his message is crystal clear. The Lord had seen the sins of Judah, Israel, and the surrounding nations, and judgment was now going to follow. And the only hope, the only hope was repentance. And we might even say that for some of them, Repentance was too late. God had been merciful. He had been long-suffering. And now judgment was going to befall upon the nations that surrounded Israel and Judah and also upon Judah and principally to Israel that Amos was addressing. Verse 2, <clears throat> and he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the inhabitations of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. I would put it to you friends that as we look at this and as we introduce the book and as we seek to introduce the introduction to you tonight, 
that you might look upon this verse here as Amos's text. This is his text. You imagine he's a preacher, and this is his text. He's outlined his text, and the verses that we're going to look at following his text, verse 2, are basically his um, warm-up, his introduction, before he gets down to the, to the meat and to the substance of the message that God has laid upon his heart. So taking that view then, we have here the text, verse 2. And basically this verse is saying, The Lord will roar from, from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. God is going to come. He is going to be like a, a lion. He's going to roar. He's coming in judgment. Now, the shepherds, they would know the roar of the lion. They would be familiar with it. It's something that they would have heard. And that's the last thing in the world that they would want to hear. If you're a shepherd and you're out with your sheep, the last thing you want to hear is the roar of the lion. Well, that's what it's going to be like for these people. The Lord is going to roar. He's going to roar from Zion. He's going to roar from Jerusalem. And he's going to come forth in terrible and in awesome judgment. The shepherds shall mourn. Yes, they'll mourn because their flock shall be devastated. And the top of Carmel shall wither. Now there are two Carmels. It doesn't matter which one we choose. But they were tended to be looked upon as fertile ground. Well, there's going to be a famine. And they're going to wither all of them. The both of them. It doesn't matter. The Lord is going to come in terrible, terrible judgment. That's what Amos is saying. That's his text. And now as he seeks to, as he's delivered and spoken his text, he now wants to introduce his subject that then at the end of his introduction, he might begin to apply his text to the people he's really aiming at. And this is important for us to take on board. He is principally aiming at the people of Israel. And he will do that after he goes through his introduction. Well, we find here in verse 3, eight times Amos uses the phrase for three transgressions and for four. For three transgressions and for four. Now we might read that. And we might say, well, God has been merciful for three occasions, but when the fourth occasion happens, it's all over. That's how we might interpret it. And we might say, well, God has put up with three breaches, three sins, or three terrible things that the nations have done, but when they, when they commit the fourth one, then it's curtains, then it's all over. Well, I put it to you, I don't think that's a correct interpretation of that phrase at all. For three transgressions and for four, it is a Jewish idiom which means an indefinite number that has finally come to an end. 
an indefinite number that has finally come to an end. Look at it another way. Three transgressions and for four. Put it together, three and four, what does that become? It becomes seven. What is seven? Seven is a number of fulfillment. That's what it is. And what this is telling us is that the sins of these people have come to fulfillment. No more grace, no more mercy. That's what it says. These nations have sinned away their opportunity. That's what he's talking about. It is that they have gloated and dwelt in the mercy of God. God is merciful, but his mercy is not infinite. It's not. He is long-suffering. He is patient. But there will come an end to his patience. And this is what this is talking about. These persons have, or these nations have sinned away the patience of God. Let's briefly look at these nations. Verses 3 to 5, it talks about Syria. What was their, their sin? Because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. Cruelty again. Cruelty in warfare. They have been treating God's people, the people from Gilead, as stalks of corn. Thresh them. Absolutely brutal towards them. And what was their punishment? I will send a fire. Fire is just quite simply judgment. It's not literal fire. It is judgment into the house of Haziel. He was the king which shall deliver the palaces of Ben-Hadad. They were going to be captured and the Assyrians came in due time and they took the Syrians into captivity. That's what that's talking about. And I will break the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon and him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden and the people of Syria shall go into captivity and to Kerr. That's Assyria, saith the Lord. Read your history, that happened. It literally came to pass. Syria was going to be dealt with. The next ones in verses 6 to 8 is the Philistines. Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. What was their sin? Because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. What did they do? They went, they went to the places of Israel. They took away captives and they sold them as slaves to the Edomites. Now the Edomites are, are mentioned later on and they, they will be punished also. But here they were, they were taking poor innocent people, taking them captive and then selling them on as slaves to the Edomites. Now the Edomites were long time enemies of the people of God and we will deal with that when we come to it. But here again is, is cruelty. 
and the judgment came upon them in the days of King Uzziah. You can read it in 2 Kings chapter 18, seven, verses 7 to 8. And what happened to them? These people who had taken the people of Israel and sold them into slavery, they themselves were sold into slavery. That happened, literally happened. Verses 9 to 10 talk about Tyre. Tyre, as it says here, but it's Tyre. What was there? What was their sin? Because, verse 9, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. They did exactly the same. Captured the people of Israel, sold them into captivity, and sold them to the Edomites. But their sin was worse than the Philistines. Why was it worse? Because during the time of David and Solomon, Solomon in particular, there was a great friendliness between the people of Israel and the people of Tyre. They, they had, what it says here, a brotherly covenant. Tyre, the king of Tyre supplied much that was required in order for Solomon to build the temple. There was a wonderful relationship at one time, but that relationship was broken. And that was a terrible thing to do, to be once friendly with the people and then capture them and sell them into slavery. Tyre then, verses 9 to 10. Edom itself, verses 11 to 12, when you, when you read of Edom, you think of Esau. What was Esau? Esau was the elder twin brother of Jacob. These two fought all their lives. They even fought in the womb. Jacob got the birthright. Jacob got the covenant blessing. Esau was out to kill him. Jacob had to run away. Eventually they came together and they seemed to be somewhat friendly. The last time they met was at the funeral of their father. And although the feud was somewhat subdued, it never went away. And the Edomites were the constant enemy of Israel. When Moses came out with the people from Egypt, Edom came out to fight against them. They would not let the people of God pass through their land. Ammon, 13 to 15. Ammon came about through an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters. They were cruel because they ripped up women with child of Gilead that they might enlarge their border. It wasn't enough for them to enlarge their border and it wasn't enough for them to engage in fighting with, with soldiers. They were that cruel that they would rip open the women to kill the unborn. That's how cruel they were. They were worse than the Egyptians. The Egyptians would at least wait until the child was born. 
And if the child was um, a male, then they would drown it. But these cruel people from Ammon, they wouldn't even wait for that. They would kill the woman and the child before it was born. That's how evil and wicked they were. And the last one we'll look at is in chapter 2. It's Moab. Again, from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Moab refused to let Moses and the people pass through their land on their way to the promised land because they hated the Jews. And they hired the false prophet Balaam that he might curse them. But as we know when we looked at the book of Numbers that God turned the curse into a blessing. All these people, all these nations, they hated Israel. And Moab, what was their particular sin that they did? Well, verse 1 tells us of chapter 2, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. What was his sin? Disrespect for the dead. A terrible thing to do. To dig up the body of a dead man and desecrate a grave and a body. Well, where are we going with this? Well, we have a number of things that we want to draw our attention to from these verses. There are one or two lessons that we can learn even from this introduction. First lesson. Let us get this into our minds. We live in troublous times. You might be thinking I might want to draw some kind of parallel with, with what is happening in Israel today. Well, I don't. I don't. Other than to say, friends, the Lord takes notice of the sins of the heathen nations and he will act. He will act. That's what we're meant to learn here. The prophet is addressing all these heathen nations and they're all surrounding Israel and they all hate Israel and they're persecuting Israel. And Israel may think, well, the Lord doesn't see and the Lord's not acting. But that is not the case. The Lord has patience, but his patience will come to an end and he will act. And the nations of the world, they may be full of idolatry. They may be up to their necks in sin and they may be flourishing in some sense. But they need to realize that God has seen everything. And one day he will act. And he will act decisively. And he will bring an end. That's one lesson. And no doubt, that's a lesson that the people of Israel would love to hear. You can just imagine it. What did I say to you before? Here he was, he was introducing his subject. He was trying to get an audience. He wanted people to listen to him. I'm not saying for one moment that he did anything slight of hand or sneakily, but here he was, he was bringing good news to God's people.
But how were they going to react when he was going to turn the screw on them and he was going to tell them about their particular sins and how God was going to move on judgment on them? And maybe we're here tonight and we love to hear how God is going to deal with the heathen nations and the heathens and the idolaters and the homosexuals and the drunkards and the prostitutes. Well, friends, he will deal with them, but he'll deal with the, the sinful righteous as well. This is what we're to learn from this book. And maybe he spoke like this in order that their ears might be open. Oh, we like to hear this. We like to hear about how other people are going to fear, how God is going to move decisively upon them. Oh, but when he spotlights our particular sins, are we then so keen to hear? Another lesson we can learn, and it's a lesson of encouragement for us, Amos, respectfully, was a nobody. He was an absolute nobody in his day and in his generation. He didn't belong to the political class. He didn't belong to the priestly class. He was a, a manual worker. It would seem that his language was very limited, but oh, he could communicate. The Spirit of God was upon him. He had God's word and he was able to deliver it, but he was a nobody. Friends, this is a great comfort to us, to the people of God, because in reality, we're all nobodies, every one of us. For you know your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Is that not true of uh, Amos? He's not mighty, he's not noble, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, the base things of the world, and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Paul wrote that to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were inclined to look upon the orators and to the great debaters and to the philosophers, and they wished that their preachers could preach and speak like, like the orators of the day that were found in Corinth. And Paul says, no, no, not many mighty are called. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world with respect to Amos, and indeed we love what he says, he was a nobody, but he spoke the word of God. What a glory. Secondly, third, or thirdly, we'd notice here too, again, for our encouragement, Amos was a worker. He was found working. He was attending his sheep or his cows, his cattle, whatever. He was about his sycamore figs. He was working with his hands, and then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he was called to the prophetic ministry. It's always the case. We've noticed it before, friends. God calls busy people. God calls laborers. God calls workers to go forth into the harvest field because you need to be a worker. And Amos was a worker. 
Just to close, the words of Amos, verse 1, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joas, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. Do you see the irony here? Do you see it? Who is he principally going to address? It's Israel. What did Israel do? What did the 10 tribes in Israel do? They went to the calves in Dan and in Bethel. That's where they worshiped. In disobedience to God, who would have them go to Jerusalem, they set up their places of worship in Dan and in Bethel. Israel, you're going to realize. Israel, you're going to know this, that God is coming from Jerusalem. And Amos came from Judah. He was going to speak to them in Israel. God had raised up prophets in Israel before, and they didn't listen to him, to them. Here was one who was going to come from Zion, from Jerusalem, from the place where they should be worshiping. And he was going to bring a message of judgment to them that they might amend their ways. With that introduction, friends, we hope to continue to look in the will of God at the book of Amos. May God bless his...